I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He's walled me in so I cannot escape. He's weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's barred my way with blocks of stone. He's made my path crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he'll show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. Those who were my enemies without cause hunted me like a bird. They tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to perish. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. 
Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, Do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You have seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Lord, you've heard their insults, all their plots against me. What my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long. Look at them, sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them back what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts, and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger, and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Thanks, Jim. Um, I'm going to pray first. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for being so faithful to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I'm Meg. Um, I'm the children's director around here. And so Chris and I uh, have swapped places for the day. He didn't mention this, but he is off in the godly playroom. And I am here before you. So it's like Freaky Friday, but Sunday morning. <laughs> um, you may have noticed uh, during Joe's reading that this chapter sounds kind of like a testimony almost. Um, in keeping with this theme, my sermon is going to sound a lot like a testimony as well. Uh, with so many seminarians among us, I figure that the only thing I have on most of y'all is years. So uh, a testimony might be my safest bet for my first sermon ever. <laughs> um, for those of you who may not know, I have two sons, James and Sam. James is my eldest. He's three and a half, and he has bright red hair. So um, even if you haven't been here for long, you may have spotted him bouncing around at potluck. He's usually <laughs> um, Anyway, ever since I can remember, James has shown his excitement with his entire body. Um, when something makes him happy, he, he tenses up and he straightens out his little arms and he moves his hands from side to side like this. Uh, and sometimes he also bounces. Uh, and the other thing we should know about James is that he gets excited about an awful lot of things. So uh, you get to see him do this a lot. Um, so when James was like one and a half or two, Jay Pendrack uh, named this phenomenon the surge, which is like the perfect description for it. You could just see it kind of taking over his body. Um, and I fell in love with this display of unabashed joy It always brought me joy to see it, and I often thanked God for it. Um, but what my family learned a little over a year ago is that this is also what is referred to as a self-stimulating behavior, or STEM, and it's one of the hallmarks of autism spectrum disorder. Um, so while the behavior hadn't changed, uh, it suddenly became a lot harder for me to muster up any gratitude for it. The symbol of my son's insatiable appetite for life suddenly became a symbol of his autism. And now every time I saw him tense up his little body, I was filled with this overwhelming mix of sadness and fear for his future 
Is he ever gonna live independently, have a job, have a family, have a friend? Autism is a disorder that alters the structure of a person's brain and impacts the way that he sees the world and those who are in it. They call it a spectrum disorder because the ways in which this alteration happens are unique to each individual. For example, James has a near photographic memory and some really incredible spatial skills. If you're ever in the nursery, you'll see him get out like four puzzles at the same time and dump out all the pieces and then do them all at once. Um, but he has very little understanding of social cues, like facial expression, gesture, and vocal tone. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Lamentations 3.38. But how do you properly lament something that is both a good thing and a hard thing at the same time? Because you see, James' autism is a large part of who he is in terms of personality. So it's been a hard journey this past year for me to parse out exactly how I'm supposed to feel about his diagnosis. How do I mourn something that's so elemental to who James is? I love him so much, and he has brought me so much joy. But the truth is that this journey that we are on can be both exhausting and isolating. So what I'd like to do this morning is to look in Lamentations 3 for some clues as to how we might move through this very messy business of lament, and also where hope is supposed to fit into all of this. Because somehow, we are called to learn the language of lament, as Chris talked about last week, but we're also called to be people of hope. So as we look at our text, you might notice some differences between chapter three and the two chapters that came before. For one thing, our perspective has changed. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. Jeremiah is speaking in first person. This funeral dirge for the city has become a very personal lament. Jeremiah describes in graphically violent terms his own experience while also referencing the city's destruction. He makes God sound like a predator. First, he's a wild animal, mangling him and leaving him for dead. Then he's an archer, using Jeremiah for target practice. And finally, God has Jeremiah under the heel of his boot, grinding his face into the gravel. And in verse 18, Jeremiah finally seems to give up hope. He declares, my future is gone, as well as my hope from the Lord. Have you ever felt that way? Like all your hopes for the future just came crashing down around you? When we first received James's diagnosis, we felt a little like this. As much as you try not to put too many specifics on your hopes for your kid's future, I definitely had envisioned him with a successful career and a satisfying marriage and multiple grandchildren that I could spoil. Um, kind of things that I think most parents hope for their kids. But suddenly I felt like I couldn't take any of that for granted anymore. Sam was just a couple of months old at the time, and I was worried about his future, too. I always envisioned James and Sam as being buddies, um, and I wasn't sure if that was possible anymore. In the midst of all of this, I fell into a really dark place. There was so much to be done in coordinating James's care and meeting Sam's needs as a newborn. I didn't really have time to dwell on everything very much, so I just had to keep moving forward, 
trying to shut out everything that I was feeling. I did pray during this time, but it was kind of that survival mode, sort of bootstrappy prayer. Like I would bring my to-do list for the day before the Lord and be like, hey, can you help me get this stuff done? Because I don't think I can get it all done. Um, after months, as the months went on, I thought that I was managing things really well. Uh, and one day I remember I was at the top of the stairs in our house and I was trying to coax James down and then I was holding a very wiggly Sam. And this is not an unusual occurrence in our household. If you have kids, this is probably not an unusual occurrence in your household either. Um, but anyway, there at the top of the stairs, I had this flash of a thought, almost like someone had whispered it in my ear. Wouldn't it be nice if I just wasn't here anymore? Now, to be clear, I wasn't thinking of a tropical island vacation with a little drink that had an umbrella. I was thinking about the great beyond. And as much as I was afraid of dealing with my feelings about everything that was happening with my children and my life, I was even more afraid of where these fleeting thoughts of death were going to lead. So I finally had to break down and acknowledge that all of this was just too much for me to handle on my own. So as I began to open up to dealing with some of this stuff, I finally gave myself permission to lament. Wasn't pretty, that's for sure but it was good and it was necessary. See, I had been afraid to really mourn the loss of my expectations for James and his future because I was afraid to mourn something that was so bound up in who he is. I felt guilty for not immediately embracing this new facet of his identity. I thought that perhaps it would mean that I loved him less or that I was embarrassed by him or disappointed in him but I needed to be honest with the Lord in order for our relationship to remain intact. Otherwise, I was denying myself access to God's healing power by keeping my hurt to myself. Like Dr. Cleveland talked about a few weeks ago, I was letting my shame over my own feelings paralyze me rather than moving through the discomfort and towards healing and freedom. We have to lament. Even if we're afraid to get real enough with ourselves and others to do it, and even if we're afraid that our pain or our trouble isn't big enough to be worth lamenting, even if we think that we should be able to buck up and handle it all ourselves, the testimony of scripture is filled with people in pain who are crying out to God and laying it all out before him. Lamentations is a great example and the Psalms are filled with others. I feel like I can safely tell you that God is okay with you not being okay. And he'd rather you just admit it and invite him into it than keep hanging on to it. So let's look back at Jeremiah. We're in the center of the book. And we've seen how the switch to first-person voice has created a more emotionally intense feeling to the chapter. But there's something else that ratchets up the intensity here and that's largely lost in translation. And that's the change in poetic form that starts here in chapter 3. Chris mentioned a few times that the entire book of Lamentations is written in acrostic poetry. Uh, and in chapter 3, the, the acrostic intensifies with each of the 66 verses beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the verses are in sets of three, and with each uh, verse in the set starting with the same letter. So if we're talking about the English al alphabet, it would be line one starts with the letter A, line two starts with the letter A, line three starts with the letter A, and then B, 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 and C, 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 um, all the way through the alphabet. 
Uh, and all of these things kind of work together to place this giant exclamation point on chapter three and mark it as the most intense portion of the book and its climax and its heart. I don't think it's an accident that it's here at the center of the chapter that's at the center of the book after 64 verses of anguish and suffering that we finally get to see a glimmer of hope. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Soon Chandra paraphrases this as, I remember something that changed how I think, and now I have hope. Jeremiah goes on to say, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. So if you've been with us all Lent and you've been kind of steeping in lamentations, these verses feel, at least to me, like someone just opened a window. Maybe like after swimming through the tragedy of the rest of the book, we're suddenly coming up for air. That's what remembering God's character can do. It can remember us, put us back together when we're shattered. This is powerful stuff. It occurs to me now that all those expectations I had for James's future were a faulty place for me to place my hope. But if I can do this mind flip that Jeremiah does when he says, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And if I can put my focus on God's character, his faithfulness, his goodness, then I can have a share of that hope too. Because while there aren't any guarantees about the way events in our lives are going to play out, we are guaranteed that God is good and he loves us. And that God is always in the business of restoring all things and working all things for our good. So even if I don't see any change in terms of my circumstances or feel any change in terms of my emotions, I can trust in the changelessness of who God is. And that is real hope. Hope that isn't hiding its head in the sand and ignoring the difficult, messy things, but hope that can look at them straight on while also remembering God's goodness, even when it feels like these two things are the most incongruous things possible. Now, I realize that this is all a lot easier to say than it is to do, but I think there are a few more clues in the remainder of the chapter about how we might be hopeful people, even while we lament. And here's the first one. Notice the portion language. The Lord is my portion. His compassion is new every morning. We talked about this in staff meeting a few weeks ago, and we talked about how this is manna language. I love that manna literally means what is it. The Israelites took it, not knowing what it was, and they ate it, and they were sustained. What a great picture of our lives during difficult circumstances. We take what is given, even when we look at it and we say, what? And we walk with God through those things, trusting that God will be our portion, and miraculously we find ourselves able to keep going. This is what real hope does. Remembering God's character also moves Jeremiah into repentance. He says, let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. 
I won't belabor this point because Dr. Cleveland did a really incredible job of elaborating on the central place that confession has in finding redemption and healing and freedom. If you haven't heard that sermon, you need to go listen to it. But I will say that in my case, part of my own repentance was to admit that I couldn't handle everything on my own. I needed help from God and from other people, including some professionals. And that's okay. It didn't make me a bad mom or a failure, but trying to suck it up and keep going it by myself, I was doing a disservice to my children and to everyone else around me. I do want you to notice one more thing at the end of this chapter. As Jeremiah focuses his mind on God's goodness, he repents, and then he begins to relate to God in a different way than he has in other portions of the book. He goes from accusing God to, of brutalizing him to calling on that same God for deliverance and vindication. This is something that brings me great comfort and hope, that we can, regardless of our circumstances, feel confident in our position as sons and daughters and keep asking our questions and even letting loose our rage when we need to, that God is big enough to handle all of that and he's not gonna check out when we do it. So zooming out a little bit, I think that we'll find that Jeremiah gives us an example that might be a helpful framework for finding hope in the midst of difficult times. He acknowledges the pain, laments it, cries out to God, remembers God's character and his history with him, and calls on God for forgiveness and leans into him for rescue. Now, I don't want you to think that this is some neat flowchart with like five easy steps to get over things, because I don't think that's how it works. But looking at both the chapter and also reflecting back on the last year of my life, I'm starting to see lament and hope as each having their own place in the dynamic of the authentic Christian life. Without hope, lament becomes despair. And without lament, there isn't much reason for hope. So the trick for me, at least, is to keep centering all of this on God and remembering who God is and what he's done. I'd like to close with a quote from Sun Chan Ra. Uh, in this quote, he's talking about the tension between lament and celebration in worship. Um, but I think the idea applies well. Lament allows for the fullness of our emotions to be expressed. Worship should not operate with divergent goals, moving our communities towards either celebration or suffering. They are not part of a zero-sum equation. Suffering and celebration must continue to intersect in our communities. Diverse worship expressions arising out of a range of experiences provide the opportunity to reflect the fullness of God's shalom. And that shalom that is grounded in who God is and what he has done for us, and that is reflective of our lament and our joy, and the way that God is sovereign over every bit of it, that is what I wish. And I pray for myself, and for each of us, and for our community. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are sovereign in all circumstances, regardless of whether or not we understand them. 
I pray that you will lead us into the, all of the fullness of your shalom.